it seems as though you have to be so careful today. Despite government, uh, law enforcement and the private sector disrupting more scam activity than ever before, in 2021 Australians lost a record amount of some $2 billion to scam activity. All it takes is a simple um, click on an email or a scam text message or a phone call that can easily catch us out. So we work harder to prove we are who we say we are through two-step verification. But when it comes to claiming that you're the Messiah, it begs the question, where's the proof? Let me pray. Jesus, we take time in your word. Would you reveal your heart to us? Would you move amongst us? Wherever this time finds us, Holy Spirit, would you use this time to bring glory to your name and help us to come to know you better? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even if the five friends didn't already know the way, it seems as though everyone in Capernaum knew where Peter's house was and that Jesus was staying there. News had reached the five that Jesus was back in town after travelling through the surrounding Galilean countryside. Before our buzz of Boxing Day sales or um, the, the launch of the latest iPhone, Capernaum was abuzz with the news that Jesus was back. Moving his home base to Capernaum was a strategic move for Jesus. Nazareth was too small. It was an ultra-conservative hill town that was not prepared to accept their hometown boy. After all, who does he think he is? We know where he's come from. We know his family. Jerusalem was too big and under the control of the Roman rulers who appointed the Jewish high priest and the effects of that rippled through the religious establishment. The spotlight would be too bright on Jesus if he was to set up base there. Too big, too small, whereas Capernaum was just right with a Via Maris trade route passing through and the ability to easily move around the region and to come down to Jerusalem Capernaum was located on the northwestern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and it was just right. Rather than an antagonistic presence to the east of town, the Roman centurion was sympathetic to the Jewish population, helping to fund the synagogue um, being built, and it was the largest building in the centre of town. The best evidence suggests that Peter's home was between the harbour and the synagogue. Peter and Andrew lived there, along with his mother-in-law. Homes in Capernaum were, were relatively generous in size, serving a population of around 1,500 to 2,000 people. It seemed as though the whole town had gathered to hear Jesus again. People clambered through and around the black basalted walled uh, entrance and doorway. Peering through every vantage point, they looked and they squeezed into the main 45 square metre room already filled with people seated and standing, listening to Jesus teach. On their arrival, the four men looked at each other and their friends slung between them and on his makeshift stretcher. The packed crowd meant that the four had no chance of making their way through the people to get their paralysed friend to Jesus. 
but faithfulness to their friend. And faith in Jesus meant that where there was a will, there had to be a way. Well calloused hands gripped the rope a little tighter as they set off around the back of the house. There, up the side of the room, stretched a basalt staircase that led to the sun-hardened, mud-thatched roof. Passing behind the crowd, they carefully struggled with their friend, still slung between them, uh, up the stairs until they were able to lay him to one side on the mud thatch. Released from their load, these same strong hands now started to dig. Finding a point of weakness in the roof, they methodically start to break away the earthen thatch, digging their way through this year's dried slurry and repairs prizing and tearing soil and branches apart until a hole becomes an opening and soon a void in the roof. Those in the room below could have been justified for thinking that they were a part of some crazy script for the latest wallet wizard ad. Falling ceiling debris soon became silhouetted by the light now streaming into the room as the guests in the house scrambled to get away from the branches and dirt raining down around them. The gap in the room becomes a perfect landing pad for their lowered friend as ropes carefully slide through tightly clenched fists. Resting on the floor before Jesus All eyes focused on the man and Jesus, while Peter scratches his head and wonders, where will he get the money to pay for this? Four sets of eyes peer through the ceiling, full of hope, full of faith. The paralysed man looks up to Jesus, full of hope, full of faith. That Jesus, who has already healed so many, will show favour and heal once more. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Not be healed, as he said to the leper, not even taking the paralyzed man by the hand and helping him up. Jesus' response defies the faith in action and raises the ire of the scribes in the room. My child, your sins are forgiven. These teachers of the religious law, custodians of the sacred traditions, they saw their task as establishing clear-cut guidelines and boundaries. They decided what was acceptable and not acceptable to God in all spheres of life so that people might live according to God's law. After all, They were the ones schooled in the written law of God and its oral interpretation. They were the ones who were admitted admitted to the closed order of legal specialists only after they were deemed to be fully qualified. They were the ones who had been set apart through the laying on of hands. But in all their training, how to keep a poker face was not part of it as their anger at Jesus leaked out through their stare. In a chorus of contemptuous thought, they railed against Jesus. What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? 
Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Credibility, integrity, authority. Can the claims made be backed up with action? Or is this a statement about sins being forgiven, just wishful thinking at best, or at worst, outright blasphemy and the words of a false prophet? I guess when it all gets boiled down to it, it comes down to proof. Without substance, the paralyzed man will be carried home, humiliated, unhealed, and publicly reminded of his sin. Exposing the skeptics, Jesus responds, So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. In an instant, not only is the cause of the paralysis repaired, but the impact on fragile bones and muscle atrophy is reversed. The body, once broken, is made whole. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through stunned onlookers. Arriving through the parting of the ceiling, the man leaves through the parting of the crowd with his stretcher under his arms. The crowd was amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Over the years, there are those who would see a direct causation link between uh, the man's sin and his paralysis. They contend that the paralysis was due to sin in his life, and Jesus' statement of forgiveness of sin is the catalyst of the man's healing. Without a doubt, there are times such as in John chapter 5 when Jesus directly links sickness and sin. But here, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus' claim is different, and the claim needs proof. While it is just as easy for Jesus to say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and take up, pick up your mat and walk, Jesus uses the latter to prove the former. If Jesus had healed the man first, then the claim of authority to forgive sins could have been lost. Jesus, as he established himself as the Son of Man, also established himself as having the authority to forgive sins. The priest of the day could pronounce God's forgiveness of sins of the worshipper if he offered the required sacrifice. But even with the coming of the Messiah, there was never an understanding that he would forgive sins. The Messiah would exterminate the godless from Israel, crush the demonic powers and protect the people from the reign of sin. But forgiveness of sin was never attributed to him. Jesus pushed the boundaries, and through the healing of the paralytic, it also proved that he also had authority to forgive sins. But there's also another theme reinforced here. As much as Jesus wants to end suffering and pain, to heal and restore the broken, Jesus knows that in the eternal scheme of things, there is more important work to do. We hear this echoed in Mark chapter 8, verse and, uh, verses 36 and 37. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? 
Is anything more worth more than your own soul? And in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Priority and proof. Sure, the healing of the body is important and it brings relief to flesh, bone and mind. But we need to remember that this is the same Jesus who in Matthew 18 says, you are better off limping into eternity or arriving with one eye than missing out with two. Absolutely. All the brokenness we see in the world, the wars, the natural disasters, all stem from sin. We live in a fallen world and every weed that we pull out and every sigh that we breathe testifies to the consequence of sin. But in Mark 2, Jesus wants to prove a point. As tough as sickness is, and the desire to see people free of pain and suffering is good and right, Jesus wants to prove that he is God's Messiah and that in Jesus there is the perfect forgiveness for sins. And that is good news. And today, Jesus still wants to prove to us that he is God's Saviour, that he wants to see people live life well through the outworking, transformative power of the good news in people's lives. Absolutely, we, uh, this can and should involve seeing people's health and nutrition improve, to see people have a safe and secure housing, to see people's mental, emotional and relational health restored. But it's only through trusting in Jesus that we can experience the good news of a restored relationship with Creator God. A child stands on the wall and calls out to a parent. If I jump, will you catch me? The parent replies, yes. If you jump, I will catch you. The child calls back, prove it. Prove to me that if, you, if I jump, you will catch me. But, but how can the parent prove this? Jump, comes the reply. But if I jump, Will you really catch me? Yes, but you have to jump. Today, Jesus still wants to prove he is who he claims he is. And that through his death and resurrection, can we experience forgiveness of sin and restoration into the family of God? Jesus has done all that he can prove, do to prove this. It's now up to us to jump. Let me pray. Jesus, there are those of us who are on the edge. We're, we're standing on the fence. We're, we're wondering, is Jesus trustworthy? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the one that we uh, have been told he is? And Jesus, we look at your word. We look at the, the stories about who you are and the, the testimony of first-hand witnesses, eyewitnesses who saw what you did. And today, you call us to jump. 
to jump into your loving arms, to jump and to trust you that you are the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, to jump and to trust you that you are the only one that can bring a restored relationship with our Creator God. Lord, help us, whether we've been a Christian for 50 years or whether we're just wondering whether we can trust you in the next five minutes. Help us to be prepared to jump, to jump into your arms. Amen. So how might we respond today? When it comes to our priority, is our, is our focus on living a good life or are we focusing on living a saved life? When we pray, do we spend time praying for this or that? Or do we pray that the outworking of Jesus' death and resurrection is outworked even more in our life? How is your relationship with Jesus? How is it changing the way that you live? Or are you standing on the wall waiting for more proof from Jesus? And how might you step out in faith and trust Jesus today? There's going to be some music played and as we do, I invite you to respond to the things that God is saying to you today. God bless you. He moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you.
darkness, my God, that is who you are. And even when I don't see it, you're working. And even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. And even when I don't see it, you're working. And even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop. Promise keep a light in the darkness, my God.